Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 47 of the Essential X Last, where don't look now and hold on to your hats, but we are finally, finally getting around to uh, this whole Factor 3 story. And I mean, it's not like we haven't been waiting, like, what, 14 issues at this point? I can't believe it. We are finally going to meet Factor 3 today. So let's not waste any time. Let's hop right on in to X-Men number 37. At an October 1967 cover date, the story's called We the Jury. Written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Ross Andrew. Inks Don Heck. Letters Artie Simic. Colors blind? Uh, the, the colors are weird here. Uh, some, of the, some of the costumes are weird. Well, one of the costumes in particular is uh, quite off-putting to look at. Uh, jury stacking by Honest Irv and edits by Stan Lee. Cover price, 12 cents. Now we open in the monitor room of the Dread Factor 3, where our weird-helmeted baddie is watching a mental projection of Professor X's memories of the X-Men's first encounter with the Juggernaut. This goes back to X-Men number 12 and 13, only without all that Human Torch interference that I don't know if we're supposed to remember or not. The change, or I mean our villain, says uh, now he knows the key to victory against these infernal teenagers. And perhaps it's worth noting, but probably not, uh, Silver Age Marvel spells teenagers as one word. So it's just teenagers. Unlike DC, who would hyphenate between teen and agers. Gotta say, for uh, silliness and corniness sake, I prefer DC's way. Anyway, so you might be wondering what our bad guy is going to do with all of this newly gotten insight regarding the X-Men. Like, what kind of diabolical and wildly specific plan might he have to take them down once and for all? Well, um, hmm. His plan is to send out one of those UFOs to blast the passenger plane that they're on out of the sky. Gotta ask here, I don't want to be pedantic, but uh, if that was the plan all along, then what did he get out of watching the Juggernaut footage? I'm pretty sure plane crashes aren't, like, a uniquely X-Men weakness, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, let's shift over to the friendly skies, where our dappily dressed heroes anxiously await arrival. One of the stewardesses overhears them talking about Factor 3 and inquires as to what that means. The quick-witted and quick-thinking beast is able to convince her that these hep teenagers were just talking and getting all excited over a new laundry detergent. Just then, turbulence, which causes the plane to dip a bit in altitude. And it's a darn good thing, too, because just then, the Factor 3 UFO took aim and bum-rushed the vessel. If not for the downdraft, the X-Men would have surely perished. Maybe this is a cameo appearance of Storm. Can we get a fake-ass no-prize on that? Anyway, the uh, UFO, or Magno Disc, rears back and readies for another go. Our heroes realize that this thing is only after them, and so they do the noble thing, which is to rush to one of the plane's emergency exits, bust down the door, and jump. And it's here, gang, where we're going to have to um, suspend our disbelief for just a second, right? I, I am no expert. I'm not an engineer. But I'm pretty sure if one of those doors managed to be opened while in flight... All sorts of bad stuff might happen. Again, I'm no aeronautics expert, but it might be a safe assumption, right? Atmospheric pressure, stuff like that. It doesn't. It doesn't. The uh, plane continues on its merry way, sans mutants. And it's as though nobody on board is any the wiser. Okie dokie. So our heroes, they leap out. Warren's got the itty-bitty briefcase that they brought with their costumes in it. And considering we already saw Jean carry all their costumes in something 
you know, a little bit larger than a matchbox, we can probably just accept this. Anyway, they're free-falling. Scott lifts his shades and blasts the UFO to bits. He feels bad about doing so, but considering whoever was on board of the thing was willing to kill dozens of innocents just to get at the X-Men, he's cool with the potential multiple murders his deadly, cursed eyes just committed. So from here, we've got four entire pages of the X-Men falling, which might sound a bit out of a modern-day decompressed comic, but it actually works pretty well here. Bobby and Jean join hands as the latter tries to telekinetically slow their fall. This doesn't work. Warren wriggles a bit to escape his suit jacket and harness to free his wings, and this also takes some doing. In the fall, Scott's specs go flying, which renders our leader all but completely blinded. He very nearly goes face-first into a sharp chunk of mountain, so I guess it's safe to say that we're already on the other side of the Atlantic then. Hank, in the air, spears Scott and kind of steers him down, having him blast the jutting rock that they almost went splat on. Warren finally gets his jacket off, the shirt's off, the wings are out, and so he grabs Scott and Hank. Bobby and Jean, in midair, make their way over as well, and we've got like an X-Men daisy chain here. But... Warren's wings ain't strong enough to support all their weight. Cyclops begs Warren just to let him go, let him die, save the rest. But Warrior refuses, and to steal a line from Wolverine, they are each other's ride or dies. Angel asks if Jean can give him a TK assist, but alas, she's just a girl, and she's tired. So it's up to Kid Cool, who says to leave it all to him. All the other X-Men look at him incredulously and ask what he could possibly do. I mean, have they not seen Bobby use ice slides in just about every issue to this point? Anyway, that's exactly what Bobby does. He concocts an ice slide to safely and funly bring the X-Men down to Earth, where they are instantly attacked by Spider-Man. I mean, I mean those Spider-Robots. I'm always getting those confused. I'm sorry about that. And by instantly, I mean as soon as they all change into costume. So, you know, Scott has his visor on now, so he can actually be a part of the effort here. Now, in the distance, we see a pair of hooded characters who inform our heroes that they are now prisoners of Factor 3. And from here, it's fight time. The X-Men take on the Spider-Bots, and Jean's TK powers have suddenly come back to uh, full power. So, there you go. Uh, And uh, they're chased into a mist-filled valley. Only it's not mist. It's actually sleeping gas. So, it's lights out for our heroes. They later wake up in one of our favorite Silver Age doohickeys, the Glass Dome. I guess at least it's not a glass box, which is usually where the X-Men wind up. Just then, a bank of monitors comes to life, revealing just who our heroes are up against. It's Factor 3, and they are... The Vanisher, last seen in X-Men number 2. Eunice the Untouchable, last seen in X-Men number 20. The Blob, also last seen in X-Men number 20. And Mastermind, last seen in X-Men number 11. Now, Angel is pretty incredulous after seeing this. After all, Eunice and Blob are hiding somewhere in the States, right? And Vanisher and Mastermind had both lost their powers. Not to mention the last time we saw Mastermind, uh, he was a stone statue locked up in the mansion somewhere. You'd think they'd notice that he'd gotten up and left, wouldn't you? I guess not. Then more lights come on, revealing our gaudily dressed and helmeted semi-Big Bad and a flight of stairs above him, the actual Big Bad. They are the Changeling and the Dread Mutant Master, respectively. The Changeling informs our team that they're currently being put on trial for high crimes against Homo Superior. 
You see, they're accused of being traitors to their kind by attempting to live in harmony with humans. He then flips the monitor bank away from our uglies and shows them Professor X and Banshee who are still being held prisoner. They're alive, at least for now. Changeling threatens that they will suffer the same fates as the X-Men themselves. So, we waste no time. We don't have to solicit this, you know, six months out. We don't need to spoil what brings us there. We don't need a five-part miniseries. We're on to the trial right away. And the Vanisher is our first witness. And he, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the testimonies here are... Very repetitive and, and very bad. Um, he basically complains about how they beat him up and, uh, you know, protected the humans back in issue two. He does, in fairness, mention the real crime here, which was Professor X totally wiped his mind. Eunice is next, and he complains that the Beast shot him with that booster ray back in issue eight, which somehow when Eunice came back he was immune to, so I don't know what the problem is. Then the Blob complains that uh, the X-Men beat him up a couple of times. Finally, Mastermind explains how he's no longer a statue. Uh, it turns out this is a case of O'Comics Razor, uh, in which the stranger's spell simply wore off. Now, his big complaint is... You guessed it, the X-Men beat him up. The Changeling wastes no time in delivering his verdict. The X-Men are guilty, guilty, guilty. And the penalty is... Doi, death. He then turns the floor over to the Mutant Master for his verdict though I thought they were already found guilty. Anyway, here's where the mutant master gets all, like, James Bond villainy and explains his plans for world domination. You see, Factor 3 is going to incite World War 3 between the United States and the Soviet Union, which will doom the human race. From there, Factor 3 will take advantage of all the chaos that reigns and then seize complete control over the Earth. The X-Men are then zapped by a ray, which doesn't kill them. It simply knocks them out so they could be hooked up to yet another machine that perhaps will kill them, or at the very least, it will sap them of all their energy and willpower and render them nothing more than slaves of the mutant master. This seems like an awful lot of wasted movement and energy here, doesn't it? Oh well, next we see the X-Men are in this like really stupid-looking wheel device with their heads under metal bowls and like light bulbs sticking out from the sides of these bulbs. It's very, very Silver Age. Uh, now, before it can kill them or mind-wipe them or whatever them, Cyclops has Bobby create some icicles, which Marvel Girl then TKs over to the control console. After some time, the ice melts, which, you know, gets all over the console and causes it to short-circuit, Ipso facto, yada yada yada, the X-Men are free. And they're immediately attacked by a green robot. After a page of fighting, Beast manages to damage the bot's antenna, which causes it just to, like, wander away in a different direction. We wrap up with yet another monitor coming to life, and on it, the Mutant Master, who says it doesn't matter that they escaped the stupid Oblivio Ray, because it's already too late. World War III is upon us, and the human race is doomed. That's where we leave it. Next time out, uh, I guess I guess we got the end of the world to look forward to. But of course, we'll just worry about that next time. Uh, for now, let's talk about uh, the X-Men's transatlantic trip here. I, I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed this issue. I thought this issue was a blast. Um, I don't know if that's just me comparing it to the last several X-Men issues that I found a little bit wanting and a little bit uh, water-tready. And maybe I'm just very excited that we're, like, finally moving forward in Factor 3 here. But, honestly, I just had a really good time with this. I feel like Factor 3 was a really good way to bring back some old villains. 
And though, I mean, <laughs> the villains that we got didn't do a whole heck of a lot more than just uh, whine and complain, um, I-, I did see the cover to the next issue we're going to be uh, talking about, and I think that's where the fight's going to happen. It sure looks like it, at least from the cover, but it's neat to see them again. It's neat to see them again in this context, and, you know, part of me wonders if uh, this might have anything to do with feedback that Stan and uh, Marvel had received about the X-Men of late in the letters pages, where folks wanted to see, you know, another another group of evil mutants. You know, after complaining that all we saw was the Brotherhood for like a dozen issues, and then complaining that we didn't see the Brotherhood anymore when they were pulled out, I wonder if this was just another stab at a Brotherhood sort of a situation, or at least an evil faction of, uh, of mutants. Of course, Factor 3 won't have the uh, longevity of a Brotherhood or a Freedom Force or really any group. <laughs> They're not going to be around very long at all. Uh, it was cool to finally reveal the Changeling here. We've been seeing him lurking in uh, the foreground and background as uh, Dr. Claw in the past few episodes, so... It was cool to see his full reveal in, in all of his gaudy glory. Of course, he'll go on to be moderately important uh, in the next, say, half-dozen issues or so. Uh, I think a lot of folks will probably most remember him uh, as uh, Morph from the Age of Apocalypse, which was like one of those trivia questions I remember back in the day. Uh, when the AOA hit, uh, so many of us were trying to like see who was who, right? And like we get these new characters, and we get a character named Morph, and... Nobody knows who he's supposed to be, like, analogous to in the 616. And then there's, like, one throwaway line. Uh, I think, like, Rogue is talking to Quicksilver at some point and says uh, something along the lines of, do you remember that ugly, pointy purple helmet that Morph used to wear? Which, you know, tipped people off who were in the know that uh, Morph was actually a changeling. Uh, I didn't know. I I didn't know anything back then. I think... I might have had, like, a Changeling trading card that was part of the X-Men set that was, like, a uh, in-memoriam card. I think there was, like, a in-memoriam subset where you had characters like uh, like Mastermind was in there. Uh, Changeling was in there, I think. I think Mimic was in there. Uh, Cypher and Warlock were in there. And I think that was the only knowledge that I ever had of the Changeling until I got far deeper into the fandom and, like, onto Usenet and stuff. So yeah, it was pretty cool to uh, see his, you know, big reveal here. And I think the only thing I remembered of him (laughs) was his uh, reveal and then something that uh, a lot of us remember that he did uh, in a few issues time, but we will will get there when we we get there. The Mutant Master and the World War III plot, I mean, it's it's a good plot, right? Uh, Mutant Master is not going to have nearly the longevity of, uh, of really any of these characters. I don't think we see him after this storyline. I could be mistaken. I don't know if he's uh, he might be in the ranks of uh, Meccano, Meccano, that we met a few issues ago. But I know he doesn't loom large. So yeah, this was a really fun issue. I'm glad that we're finally, like, <laughs> we're entrenched in Factor 3 at this point. There's nowhere to go but, you know, through the story. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get... Too many more fill-in issues before this one wraps up, and then we can finally move on to, uh, well, whatever's next. I honestly cannot remember. A nice breezy read, uh, definitely definitely worth a few minutes of your time. Uh, Ross Andrew, I, I liked his art a lot better last issue. Um, I don't think Don Hex inks really did him any favors here. I mean, it's not bad by any stretch, but it's... Uh, It was better last time, but uh, that's our story. I'm looking forward to the next part, and I hope you are as well. 
But from here, let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. <laughs> We've got a disclaimer from Stan. Now, we talked about this um, in passing during a bullpen bulletin not too long ago where Stan was complaining about the length of the letters he was getting, which, I mean, I get it. He, he probably got a lot of letters, but uh, for someone who like loves getting letters, I, I can't wrap my head around that. So we have the disclaimer. Now hear this. Please keep all letters no longer than one page. Have mercy, mellow ones. So uh, the letters we get today are of the shorter variety. And we're going to start with George in Brooklyn. Now George is sick of hearing Cyclops complain about his deadly cursed eyes and says he should just get contact lenses and shut up his face. To which Stan asks smart guy George how Scotty would even begin to go about actually putting contact lenses in. So, checkmate, George in Brooklyn. Next up, Thomas in Pennsylvania. He wants to see Scott and Jean get married ASAP. He wants creepy Ted Roberts deep-sixed, and he wants the mimic back. Well, dude dude seems to know what he wants, and it clearly isn't what the X-Men are going to give him. Maybe he's just reading the wrong books. Now, Stan asks if he would rather the Scott and Jean romance or the, quote, plodding pedantry of Brand Ech. And... I didn't realize those were our only two options. Mike in Ohio. Now, Mike did not care for X-Men number 33. He thought the Doctor Strange cameo was a little too short, didn't show enough of his character. Now, he would like to see the angel fight Vulture from Spider-Man. And what's more, he would like to see Wanda and Pietro join the the X-Men. What is this, 35 episodes ago? Where did this come from? Uh, he is happy with the Scott and Jean romance and cannot wait to read Not Brand Ech. Stan thanks uh, our man Mike and promises that we'll be seeing Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch again before long. Donald in California and it's continuity cop time. He's got a question about the Mole Man's appearance in X-Men number 34, and he asks, how did he survive the explosion of Tony Stark's factory back in Tales of Suspense number 88? Now, he also liked Don Adkins on art, thought his attention to detail on Warren's ears was great. And you know how, like, Warren wears that cowl over his head, and I guess, uh, I guess Adkins paid special attention to the outline of Warren's ear, and that was something that, uh, that Donald noticed. So Stan says that Adkins is now very upset with Donald because, uh, Stan keeps having him schlep into the bullpen to draw all of the Marvel characters' ears. And Stan kind of cops out on that Mole Man question, saying that it was just a little boom, and old Molies survived worse. Next up, we got a VIP, Peter Sanderson Jr. in Massachusetts. Now you might be asking, who's Peter Sanderson? Well, in our parlance, we might call him a real-ass comics historian. This dude is the real deal. Early on, he was a prolific letter hack who actually impressed the folks at DC so much that they would expand their letters pages to fit his analysis and discussion. So pretty high praise indeed. Uh, He would go on to do some writing for various pro-mags, including the Comics Journal, Comics Feature, and my personal favorite of yesteryear, Amazing Heroes. In the early to mid-1980s, DC Comics would hire Peter, giving him the task of, get this, reading every single DC National Comic since 1935. Could you even begin to imagine? Boy, now his work was invaluable for projects like DC's Who's Who and Crisis on Infinite Earths. Then, over to Marvel Comics, where Peter was mentored by Marvel legend and continuity cop himself, Mark Gruenwald. And Peter was named Marvel's first scholar 
which I tell you is a much more prestigious title than when goofballs attributed to themselves on social media. He'd be placed in charge of the Marvel Library and was an integral part of the research for the official handbooks of the Marvel Universe. Peter would go on to write Marvel Saga, which was a series that ran in the 1980s that provided a sort of kind of inch-deep, mile-wide look at Marvel history from the very beginning. Now, I kind of view these as like an expanded version of the Wolfman-Perez history of the DC Universe that followed Crisis. So, uh, Sanderson's a pretty important dude here, and this is the first we're seeing him opine on the X-Men. And here's his letter. Now, he felt the story in X-Men number 34 was very good. He wonders if any of the eagle-eyed readers noticed that Mole Man and Tyrannus now resided 20 miles below the surface, rather than at the center of the Earth. I wasn't aware that was something we were supposed to be looking out for. Peter posits that this change might have been made due to a letter that he'd written over to Tales of Suspense, wherein he commented on the Iron Man vs. Mole Man story. He stated that the Mole Man couldn't possibly live at the Earth's core, as it would be far too hot and far too pressure-heavy for anyone to survive. Now, he suggests that this change could have only occurred for two reasons, either due to Roy Thomas's smarts or his letter. Well, I wonder how Roy would answer that question. <clears throat> uh, Peter would also like to see Claw versus Banshee. So Stan checked with Roy, and duh, Roy is taking credit for the change because it's probably something he went to college for. He probably went to college on a subterranean living uh, scholarship or something. Uh, Stan says he'll send Pete a no prize anyway. Next up, Calvin in Los Angeles. He says the X-Men are his favorites, and he gives a reason why. Um, because the name Warren is beautiful and fitting for the powerful, handsome, high-flying angel. So that's why the X-Men are better than the Avengers and Fantastic Four. I mean, I agree. The X-Men are better than the Avengers and Fantastic Four, but... Uh, Hmm, okay. Uh, he also liked the Mimic because they have the same name, Calvin. Stan replies by asking Cal if he has any friends. Uh, I mean, friends named Peter, Reed, or Falstag, because there's, there's books in the Marvel Library that they might dig. Uh, finally, we got John in Illinois, and he calls out the art in X-Men number 34 for depicting the Mole Man as a normal-sized svelte man. And hey, we pointed that out too. Yeah, Stan's copped out on answers before, but this one takes the cake here. He says that the Mole Man's increased stature came with his joining the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Oy. Alrighty, alrighty. Now let's head into the bullpen bulletins page, and we don't have a uh, tongue twister here. It just says, Welcome to the wonderful world of Marvel Madness. Which is sad. I hope that the tongue twisters come back, because that was a lot of fun to try and get through them in one take. And I think uh, my record was pretty... Pretty good. Anyway, first item, king-size specials. Again. Though, in this one, we finally find out what's going to happen in the Spidey and Fantastic Four installments. You see, Fantastic Four special number five will include two brand new stories. First, an FF story featuring the Black Panther and the Inhumans. <clears throat> uh, second, the first ever solo Silver Surfer story. How about that? Spidey special number four will see a double-sized story which pits Pete against the Human Torch. Stan says that these two are can't miss, and if you can only buy two books that month, make sure these are them. Item! Speaking of Spidey and the Fantastic Four, did you hear that they have a uh, half-hour ABC series? Uh, they're, still, they're still a go, so um, no new news, but they're, they're happening. Item! 
Now, this is a contentious little area here. Uh, Stan follows up on the Mark Avanier letter from a few issues back. Not the one in X-Men, but the one in the bullpen bulletins. This is the one where Mark laid out potential rankings for the Merry Marvel marches here to keep things keep things in order, to keep it from, you know, chaos reigning over the MMMS. And, well, Stan's got some feedback. First, from Robert, Massachusetts, and he is not a fan of this idea. He says that if rankings are based on getting letters published and earning no prizes, all that's going to do is make it so Stan and the gang get more boneheaded letters trying to, quote, make the rank. He says that this will cause letter pages to lose their dignity. Huh. Sounds like a current year discourse between fans and editorial, doesn't it? No dignity or, or, <clears throat> or integrity. Uh, he warns not to add an atmosphere of cheap commercial competitiveness to the Marvel Comics group. Wow, uh, that ship surely sailed, hasn't it? Um, by the way, while I'm here, I'd like to retroactively give every book we've covered on X-Lapsed a rock-solid 10 out of 10 review score, <clears throat> and humbly ask, can someone please love me and, and send me free stuff? Ahem. Um, Stan says that Robert's got some good points, but he's definitely part of the minority opinion. And so Stan next shares a letter from KF in Brooklyn. Now, KF loves the idea of ranks, but thinks there aren't enough of them. He suggests Keeper of the Faith, or KF, for members of the MMMS, claiming that it should fall somewhere between RFO and QNS in the Avanier rankings. Now, Stan writes that KF actually sent in a crap ton more ratings, but there's only so much room for this sort of garbage in the bullpen page. Anyway, Stan says he likes the idea of having rankings, but assures us that finalizing the list is not something he'll be taking lightly. Boy, that's a relief. Item! Millie the Model has gotten a facelift! Figuratively. The book's been updated and it's better than ever. Stan says even if Millie ain't your cup of tea, maybe give it a shot. Or, you know, give it to your sister or gal pal. Item! Not brand ech now has its own letters page. Cool. Uh, we wrap up with Stan's soapbox, where Stan answers a question he was almost certainly never asked. And that question is, how do you feel about Marvel's books? Uh, Stan um, might surprise you, but Stan cares about them an awful lot. Alrighty, gang, it's time for the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist. And uh, it's so weird not having Fantastic Four on the top of the list. Uh, what's even weirder is the fact that Not Brand Ugh is the top of the list. Um, not Brand Ugh number four will tell us what happens when the villains win. Fantastic Four 68 is the most important FF saga of the season, so I don't know if that just means of the, you know, this three-month block, or... I, I don't know. It, it's important, is what they're trying to say. Spider-Man 54 has Spidey vs. Doc Ock with Aunt May in the middle. Avengers 45, the Super Adaptoid is back. I mean, he's only been gone for about five minutes, but now he's got the added powers of Thor, Hercules, and Iron Man. Daredevil 33, The Beatles back. Thor number 145 features our hero, who I was going to call the Odinson or Odinson. I just don't know how to say it. <laughs> I don't know which way is right. And each way I said it just sounded really unnatural. So we'll just say our hero, or Thor himself. He will be powerless and abandoned on Earth. Tales of Suspense 95, Iron Man vs. the Grey Gargoyle, and Captain America makes a startling decision. Tales to Astonish 97 has Namor on Skull Island and Hulk vs. the Living Lightning. Strange Tales 162, Nick Fury vs. the Yellow Claw, and Doc Strange vs. Mordo. Still, while the Living Tribunal sets to destroying the Earth, 
still. Sergeant Fury number 47 features the Nazi invasion of Britain. And then we go to our reprint corner here with the 11th issues of Collector's Item Classics, Fantasy Masterpieces, and Marvel Tales. We will wrap up this page with a look into the roster of the Merry Marvel Marching Society, where we have 26 new members. Nobody really stands out. All right, well, that's our issue. Let's head into our shout-out department here, where I thank the folks who helped share the show on social media. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Walt Neeland, Chris Bailey, Joe Crawford, Jeremiah, Ed Moore, Dave Schultz, Mark Jagger, The Long Box Crusade, John Gomez, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Evan Bevins, Pat Sampson, Walt Neeland, and Billy D. Of course, I want to thank the wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. Thank you all so much for your support and helping me to uh, realize that uh, I'm not just talking to myself. <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes it feels that way. When it's just me in a room talking into a microphone, it sometimes feels like uh, you know, you're slowly or rapidly losing your mind. It's It's a thing. Anyway, let's wrap up today. It's it's Monday, and uh, even though it's not original Recipe X lapsed, let's do the Weekend X anyway here. Uh, the books on Unlimited and the books that will be appearing on shelves this week. On Unlimited, we've got, uh, I mean, they're both pretty small weeks here. It really feels like, uh, you know, this era of X-Men is starting to starting to wither before the, uh, the big bloom next year. So on Unlimited, we have three books, well, two that are main books, one that's a side book. We have X-Men number two. Hellions number 14, and Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood number 1. Then on shelves, and you know, I usually use Comic List for, uh, to find you know, what's coming out this week. Boy, that site's become so hard to navigate. I remember back in the day, I used to use it like back in the like late 90s, I feel like. And it was always just so easy. You'd pop over there, you'd see your list, you'd figure out what you needed, and bada-bing, bada-boom. Now it's like sort of like hybrid news, hybrid like speculation, and then some, <laughs> some you know listing of what's coming out. I have to like actually sidestep the entire site and just Google you know what books are out on such and such date in order to get the direct link to the comic list page because other th- otherwise I'd be just I'd be lost. <laughs> so I did that again today. And we got, uh, we have two books. We have Excalibur 25 and Hellions number 17. Uh, For those interested, there's also Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood number 4. I think that's the final issue of that series. And we got Reign of X Volume 5, which means I'll actually be able to do a collected X lapsed next weekend. So if uh, if that's how you're following the show, you're probably not listening to this episode. But (laughs) in any event, I hope you enjoy the collected version. Anyway, I think that will do it for us for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason at all, you could find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And, you know, I probably should just record this, you know, and just uh, tack it on to the end of every episode, because I'm saying the same thing every time. Um... For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. Um, what else? The uh, the archives, the audio archives. See, I'm messing up here. chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You find that anywhere. You find noise on the internet. And uh, one more plug for the Patreon, patreon.com slash xlapsed. A bunch of exclusive content, first-run content, behind-the-scenes stuff for uh, one of the more mundane people on the planet. 
and much, much more to come. So with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me reside in your ear for about a half hour today, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.